So the question that you put, I, I'd like to kind of summarize it. What I'm seeing, and tell me if this is how you guys see it, yeah, or, or how do you see it differently? It seems like on one side we have our emotional lives, the life within this uh, th- things that we feel that often we're told to control and put out on the side and whatnot, because we got these more objective things to do, which is making money and like you know, there's a productivity and this and that, and there's a lot of stuff. And I'm not saying good or bad for any of them, but the question becomes. How do we find a balance between the two? How do we optimize the two in a way where our experience, uh, whether that's it's that's our emotional experience or whether that's our performance and our productivity and our objective experience or objective things that we do kind of synchronize and um, coexist and create harmony and overall improve our performance and experience at the same time. So that's the two big things, the duality that I see playing out. And I'm curious to know uh, how you guys visualize optimizing the human experience. The first thing that comes to mind for me is, first of all, like obviously it's going to be a personal thing. So your your own balance will be different than my balance in the various things you're into, blah, blah, blah. That's out of the way. The biggest thing that comes to mind for me and what I've been thinking about a lot recently, and one of the guys that I really like who speaks about this idea in general is Mark Manson, who wrote The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck. It's a huge self-help book. The, I read the book like a number of years ago, but I just started following his newsletter and kind of reading some of his stuff that he wrote online. And I really just like his take on reminding us that it's not about avoiding struggle. If you talk about, like, it seems like a lot of balance and happiness tries to get away from struggle. But what we were just talking about is it's almost the hard emotions that are telling you this is where you need to go to have the most satisfying life because satisfaction necessarily comes from doing something hard. So a successful and balanced and happy life needs problems. It needs struggle. It just needs the right kind of struggle. And I think that's where the individuality comes in, where you need to find out for yourself, what are the kind of problems and struggles that I almost get some kind of weird masochistic enjoyment from, right? For me, a lot of the reason that, you know, I've been into fitness for so many years is because I get enjoyment out of it. It's hard. It's not objectively, you're looking at me like, trying to deadlift 300 pounds, I'm not necessarily like got a huge grin on my face, right? <laughs> it's, not, it's not like a super fun time, but I choose to do it over and over, not just for the, like the health benefits or the appearance benefits. Those are nice, definitely a big factor, but there's a part of me that just loves the struggle. And if you really look at anyone who's long-term successful, anyone whose life has just achieved an incredible thing, over the entire course of their lives, they were doing something that they just loved the struggle of. It wasn't easy, but for some reason, they were able to do it when other people gave up. And it's it's your ability to kind of find what is the thing that is hard for me, but I still get this weird kind of enjoyment from. And what can I do over the course of decades that will eventually culminate into some kind of life task. 
this thought kind of devolved, but <laughs> hey, there's no judgment. I think gonna let it flow. You, yeah, you were no. So you were talking, Joshua, earlier about um, this feeling of having to choose almost between a high paying job or a passionate job, right? It's the it's a very common feeling that I have as well. Of like, do you go for you know money or passion? Money or passion? It feels like this dualistic choice, right? Um, and I think there's definitely some balance and perhaps some sacrifice you have to make in the short term. You got to pay bills. That's a fact of life. But if you're going to look at a long term success, what makes someone successful in the long term? It is the people who are icons in certain fields became the absolute best in that field, not by a feeling of obligation. They were following this part of them that just felt drawn to this thing. Even though it was hard and it was a struggle, they were drawn to it over and over and over again. And that's what you remember in someone. They were the best at that thing. That's what makes someone really special. So I think if you're looking at your life as a whole, instead of just like, what's the practical day-to-day -day looking like, what I wanna be known for as a person or just who do I want to be it's going to be something you're passionate about. It has to be for you to have any chance at being successful in it long term. You have to have some passion in it. It can't be purely an obligation. So I have a couple of quick questions. There are three big words that you put out there, Ryan, struggles, success and passion. And these are words that get thrown around a lot, at least in the personal development world. And I struggle with these words. So, because obviously they're very loaded. They're very like, they can mean very different things for different people. So I'd like to know from both of you, what do these three words, success, struggle, or struggle, which leads to be, when we overcome the struggle, some sort of success, and then doing something or, or choosing a struggle and being su successful at something that you are passionate about. So what do these three words mean to you and how do you see these three things playing out in your head? Um, I, I guess first off, I, I, I definitely agree with what you were saying, Ryan, in terms of uh, doing something that you care about requires some sort of purposeful struggle. That's how I think of it. Like. Um, you're choosing that thing on purpose, whether that is like lifting weights, for example, which is obviously extremely physically tiring and has a lot of benefits, but you're not doing it necessarily for, for the, I guess, the end outcome. It's more so the feeling that it elicits. I, I suppose you could argue that's an end outcome, but it's a, it's a struggle that you choose. And there's like many other ways that you can characterize this, I suppose, like working on 90 hour work weeks if you're like a goldman sachs investment banker even though um that's probably another very tiring way or i suppose another example is um you know i i, I just was speaking to an, a business executive at amazon um he's a finance manager there and he was and he was basically saying yeah i love working till midnight every night which blows my mind and I'm sure a lot of people, cause it's like, yeah, I like my sleep. No, thanks. But at the same time, it's like, it's probably a similar thing, right? Like purposeful struggle. Um, I suppose that also comes up to the second question, how, how that leads to success is that success is 
very individualistic. I think you were saying earlier, Ryan, that we all are so uh, unique and idiosyncratic that what the right balance is for us is only going to be, we have to determine that ourselves. We can't look at other people and say, that's how we, that's what success looks like, because there's always going to be some sort of resistance. So I think success is probably, I, I don't know what the definition is, but that's something that I think we always are looking for. And I think it never, I don't think it's static. I think it is constantly evolving. I know for me, it is at least um, searching for what success means is something that is, I'm always updating, you know, at first I thought success is making money and then I realized, well, no, I, that, that doesn't, that for me, that's not right. Then I thought doing something that's, that you love is success. But then I thought it feels right, but doesn't feel like the right balance. And I feel like that's always, you are always updating that. So I don't know what, what the definition would be, but I feel like that's something we would have to define ourselves. And then I feel like passion arrives when purpose and purpose struggle and success meet. Oh no. Maybe the equation would be purpose, purpose plus passion, purposeful struggle plus passion equals success, something like that. I don't know. That's how I sort of see those three words, but maybe that's a bit reductionist. I'm not too sure. I'd be curious to see what you guys felt. I definitely strongly agree with trying to get away from success as some end destination. I think that that creates so much suffering, <laughs> unnecessary suffering and like mental energy, you know, trying to, like you were saying, like trying to reduce it down to some kind of formula that, you know, success can be achieved by X amount of dollars in the bank and this income and this like activities every single day and this body weight and this like size arms, you can try to reduce it down all the way down to that. But I think fundamentally success, I kind of, I equate success more with a general life satisfaction and contentment and just there's this guy named Derek Sivers. Have either of you guys ever heard of him? Derek Sivers is, oh wow, how do you even describe him? He was a, mus a musician for decades. He was like very single-mindedly obsessed on musician. And then he started this company called CD Baby that started selling independent CDs like back in the early 2000s when you didn't have a way to order CDs online from independent artists. and it ended up growing. He had run it for like 10 years, ended up selling it for something like 22 million and then put all the proceeds in some kind of trust, charitable trust that would pay out a little bit to him until he died and then donate the rest to charity. And since then, he's just been writing obsessively. He, he published like three books just last year and just his prolific output has just a kid live somewhere in New Zealand and is just an incredibly unique perspective to listen to. And I was listening to a couple of his podcasts last couple of weeks or so. And I just got this super strong feeling of knowing that he was just really happy and really content with his life. And it dawned on me that that is a very rare thing to observe in someone. There are very few people I know or that I have come across online, even very, very successful quote unquote figures don't necessarily put out 
any sort of content vibe that they're just really happy with what they've done and really content with their lives and really satisfied. And I just realized that that might be the most admirable quality for me that I see in another person, because I see that as I would say the utmost success when you're just so happy and satisfied and content and happy to be alive. How is that not success? You know, isn't that actually what we're all striving for? So that would be my definition of success. And with regards to passion, I'm split on it. I do think that there's a very strong argument that for a lot of people, passion comes second instead of first. It's kind of like the motivation and work. People think that you have to be motivated to then start working, when in reality, it's the reverse. You start working and then it's the result of your work that motivates you to do more work, but you have to work first. So I think that for a lot of people, the issue of passion is similar in that passion comes from mastery. It comes from getting really, really good at something and then helping other people or somehow contributing to the world with that skill set. And that's how you become passionate is you see the fruits of your labor and it just kind of snowballs from there. You get more passionate, you do more work, you get more passionate, you get better, you do more work, so on and so forth. There are obviously some people that just know from the day they're born what they're passionate about, what they want to do, but that seems to be much more the exception than the rule. And I think that also causes a lot of unnecessary mental suffering and wasted energy trying to find our passion, like it's something to be found just by thinking about it. I think in in most cases, it seems like it's the other way around, where passion comes from just mastering something, getting better at it, contributing to the world, and going from there. So I have a quick question, very quick question, and I'd also like to share what I think of success, but Ryan, you brought up this notion of mastery, and somewhere in my head, the question comes up, does mastery mean specialization, or does it mean being a kind of generalist? So how do you see mastery when you say that real quick? I really like the idea from Scott Dilbert, or not Scott Dilbert, Scott Adams, the creator of Dilbert. Mm -hmm. um, you, are you familiar with him? And his idea of combining different skill sets. You've read Range, right? The book Range. David Epstein. Yeah, I think, I think I've heard you talk about that. It's a similar idea where, you know, if you wanted to be a basketball star or like a pro basketball player, you'd have to be in the top 001% whatever of basketball players. But that's not necessarily, it's not necessary. Instead of being in the top, top percentiles of a one field, you can be in the top 20 percentile of multiple different fields. So you could be maybe a basketball player who's like really good at programming and public speaking or something like that. And then you come up with this weird combination that somehow differentiates you from everyone else and makes you the best of that really specific thing. So it's like you're a specialized generalist because you took multiple different fields, combined them together in a unique way. So you're special in that way, but it wasn't just like you became the best at one thing. That's super interesting, man. Um, I completely agree, like having the balance between specialist and generalist. But I was also watching a podcast about creativity 
and it spoke about how um, people who came up with the best ideas, I think it was talking about Albert Einstein, on how he was working on like three to four different things at the same time. He was not just pursuing one thing. And the whole concept was like, when you have more than just one specialization, when you have a couple of different things going on, uh, the mind is more like flexible and it can jump around and ideas start to connect. And that's when like breakthroughs happen because we're not siloed into a box. We're more free and more open and there's more space to wiggle around and connect different dots. Um, so yeah, man, I agree to you. Uh, I'd like to share what I think of success, but I'm wondering, David, did you want to respond to anything before I say it? No, go ahead, man. I'm interested to hear what you think. Okay, so I actually, like, there was a time when I was thinking a lot about success and I was very in, like, my emotional side. So obviously there's been a lot about, like, material success and what that means. And I, I think all of, everyone knows what that looks like, but I was more interested in, like, inner success. What does uh, being feeling of uh, being content mean in, in the concept of success. So I wrote a poem in relation to this. It's called True Success. And obviously it's a little bit biased towards one side, but I think I did that for a certain reason. So here's how it goes. True success is to experience the miraculousness of life and its beauty with an open heart and joyful curiosity to experience and see the phenomenological nature of reality to harmonize with everything that's around me and find balance, homeostasis and synchrony, to fly high and go against gravity and to transcend our condition of this duality. To be successful is not just to survive, but to thrive, a space that lies beyond the hive. You can seize it if you just believe and try and purge, let go and just cry. With a breath of relief, yet a sense of high, True success lies here and now, oh my. So that's obviously biased towards one inner side. <laughs> that was awesome, man. Hell yeah, that was awesome. But uh, yeah, like I have been very interested in, I guess a little bit more biased towards what inner success looks like and what emotional success looks like and how but also at the same time, how can the inner life synchronize with the external material reality? How is that? How can we bridge that gap where outside or optimize our experience in a way where we're materially doing well, we're productive, we are taking care of our uh, physical health and uh, financial health and whatnot. But at the same time, how do we synchronize that with what's going on inside in this whole inner world that lies um, within us? Uh, so yeah, that's that. That was my take, and I'm curious to know if you have, you guys have any thoughts on finding the synchronicity between outside and inside, or anything else. I'm just gonna riff for a second on this word that Shashwa brought up that has been on my mind a lot lately, and it has it is a surrender. And I'm just gonna go meta level one second for above this conversation, out of this conversation for a second. Imagine us, like all three of us, this is something I was just thinking about as I was listening to you guys talk. Imagine all the three of us like 30, 30 or 40 years from now, like 50 or 60 years old. And going back to Joshua talking about like success and passion and career and all this kind of stuff. I don't want to sound arrogant when I say this, but 
we're all going to be successful, right? Like, however that is defined, we're all going to be okay, right? Like, we're going to be happy, we're going to be fine. Like, I think that for people like us that are very inquisitive and curious, try to think things through, be philosophical, it's important to keep this in mind, at least for myself, I'll speak for myself, that sometimes it can become a frantic search for the answer. And in that search, we forget the very lessons that we're learning. Like we're learning, we're reading all this philosophy, we're learning, okay, I just have to relax and be more present and, and all this stuff. And then we get so intoxicated by that and we try to learn more and more and more. And we somehow like miss the lesson. <laughs> the fundamental lesson being just like, chill out for a second, just chill. It's gonna be fine. And this is a lesson that I have needed to hear a lot in the past six months or so, because I have been getting caught up a lot in thinking about the future and about success and what kind of path I want to go down. What is going to be my big hero's journey, my life mission, all this sort of stuff? What will I be remembered by for? I don't think about that one a whole lot, but it comes around. And I think it's just really powerful to remember that we're going to be fine. Like we're smart enough, we're capable, we're curious, we're perfectly going to be just fine. And if you look at any sort of wise elder, like think about Yoda, for example. Yoda's like the wisest motherfucker around, right? Like he just knows everything, but he isn't like this bookworm or this guy who's just obsessed with trying to find the answer. He's just chilling. Like he literally, in the beginning of Star Wars, when Luke first meets him, he's just like, eating his food and giggling and like beating him with a stick and like laughing a lot. He just couldn't give two shits <laughs> about all the stuff that Luke's caught up in, right? So it's this idea that almost the, the meta level of success is not trying to be successful. It's, it's, it's not even about what you do per se, going back to say that 90 hour work week guy, how he's like, loves working 90 hours or maybe it was just till midnight whatever it was and we were talking about what kind of careers and what people like right your individual individual preferences it's really i'm realizing it's really a lot less to do with what you do it's much more about how you do it so this kind of curiosity and obsession that i would say at least i have and i think we all have for personal development, philosophy, self-improvement, all this, it becomes much more about how you engage in it and how you do it and why you're doing it than what you're doing. Someone who doesn't read any of this stuff could arguably be wiser than us or more successful than us if they're just a happier person, right? If they're just enjoying their life more. So I've been thinking about that whole idea a lot that fundamentally at the end of the day, a certain amount of surrender and just faith is required. And 
relaxation. <laughs> I think that we can get a little too caught up in trying to figure it all out. And we gloss over the fundamental lessons that a book like the Tao Te Ching or those ancient philosophical texts or the Buddha or anyone else is really trying to say, which is chill out, just enjoy yourself. And that's really helped me a lot. I know I definitely still need to hear it a lot. I'm content. I'm considering tattooing it on my forehead just because I think I need to hear it more often than not. But yeah, it can be a healthy reminder, you know, when you get caught up in everything, just to take a step back, imagine yourself a few decades from now and realize that it's all a journey. And the point is to just enjoy it. That's so interesting, man. Um, uh, thank you for sharing. And uh, maybe just so I just wanted to maybe just summarize everything that you just said, just make sure I understand or maybe what I took from it. So essentially you were saying, I mean, you first began with saying in terms of us as personalities, I think generally if you're, if you're someone to kind of come on a podcast, you're quite an inquisitive person. So in essence, you began by saying that in some sense, we will find the, the, we will come to a journey that we um, would characterize as successful because it, it's just maybe in our nature to be that we will figure it out in some sense. Um, and then you went along the lines, you were saying how relating back to like these Chinese, um, a Chinese philosophy, like the Tao Te Ching and all those things you were saying that in essence, it is not what we do, but how we do it and why we do it. That may get us to the place we want to be. Is that a fair sum a summary of, of everything? Yeah, definitely much more succinct, yeah. <laughs> but as you were saying that I thought of another, um, I need to explore Zen, Zen Buddhism more, but I explored it a little bit like last week or so. And they have the saying in Zen Buddhism, which chop wood, carry water and getting to the point where it's like in the beginning, you're, you're kind of just this little kid chopping wood, carrying water, doing like the menial tasks, kind of bored, wanting to move on to the cooler stuff. Right. And then you go through this whole cycle of learning everything and becoming wise and achieving wisdom. And then at the end of the journey, you're still chopping wood and carrying water, but now you're enlightened, right? So it's totally independent of the actual activity itself. It's all mm. about your state of mind when you're mm. doing the activity. Mm. I think that was my fundamental point. Yeah. And I, I completely agree with you. And I, I suppose like a quick anecdote of how I can relate that to relate to that directly is coming back to this, to this idea of working for a passion versus working for the sake of, you know, paying bills. So I remember um, I work at a call center for my university and I call, I used to call up alumni and raise money for scholarships. Right. So I'd just be like, give me your money basically. Um, and I remember when I started the job, I just left a, a job in the hospitality, like as a waiter. And I, and I hated that job. Like yeah, I detested it. And then I started this new job and I was like, okay, this is going to be really fun. Um, this is an opportunity for me to try something new, something that I enjoy, something that I actually like, because I hadn't worked a job so far that I really liked. And then I guess one month into the job, I remember just waking up being like, damn, I really don't like this job. Like, I don't want to work here anymore. And then I was, I was sort of just observing my own thinking being like, is it me or is it the job? Like, what is, what is really going on here? 
And essentially, I guess after some sort of like a meditative exercise, I realized that in some sense, it was me resisting the job and not surrendering. And also maybe a couple other things that my internal perspective on the job, uh, I guess, clouded my view of what I was doing. And so in some sense, after I came to that realization, it was very bizarre, but I had this like moment of peace where when I would go to work, I wouldn't feel that dread anymore. I wouldn't feel... um, bothered or annoyed so in some sense i completely resonate with what you're saying because i feel like that's that's in some sense encompassing of that quote where it's like in one sense it is a menial task but on the other hand it is being in the now and being present and being truly in touch with that that moment in time i'm sorry i completely agree with you on that point yeah i think it's what you had is fundamentally a manifestation of the the lesson that meditation tries to teach, which is of complete and utter just observation and acceptance of the present moment. And if you really think about it, so much of our suffering on a day-to-day basis simply comes from the fact that we're not accepting what is currently happening. And, you know, sometimes that can be a good thing. Like, I'm not going to say that shitty jobs don't exist. Yeah, I don't necessarily want to go, like, pump shit out of an airplane. I know that's a job. I don't necessarily want to do it, but it's an issue of the suffering that you create from that. I think that you can still make decisions, like you could still make the decision and plan to get out of that job without hating your life in the meantime. You know, nothing about making that decision requires you to be miserable in the meantime. So I think if you can develop that skill of really fully accepting something, doesn't necessarily mean that you can't do anything about it. Yeah, for sure. And it doesn't, it also doesn't, it doesn't take away from the negative, maybe the negative parts of the job, but that doesn't mean that you can't accept what you're doing in the present moment. And then also at the same time, accept that it is maybe not an ideal place. I think Viktor Frankl said this in his book when he was in the concentration camps, it's like uh, something, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. He says, um, you may have lose control of everything in your life except one thing, the last of human freedoms to have control to have complete control over your feeling towards something. And he was using this as an example within in concentration camps. He could see the definitive moment where people would lose their life, which is when they would start selling cigarettes because cigarettes was used in a, as a form of currency in concentration camps, right? Um, and so when people would stop selling cigarettes and start smoking them, that was in a sense, signing their own death wish, right? They lost hope. Um, but people like him and survivors of the concentration camp, they were able to recognize that you may be able to starve me. You may be able to do all these things, torture me, but you cannot take away my, my, my sense of feeling, my feeling towards the world. Um, and you know, whether that comes from having complete control over, um, how you view a situation. And then like even Marcus Aurelius, 2000 years ago, he says, um, I forget the words, but essentially the same, same thing. Right. So I think that's a really big part of optimizing human experience, right. Is recognizing what you have control and what you don't have control in for sure. Um, and yeah, I, I had another point, but I, I, you, you go ahead, Ryan. (laughs) I, I, I definitely want to let Shashwat jump in in a second because I know we've been talking for a while, but you mentioned Viktor Frankl and I just wanted to say that the, the whole idea, going back to purpose and kind of success, uh, the idea 
that the meaning of your life is not chosen by you was really powerful for me. If you if you read yeah. the book Searching for, for Man's Search for Meaning, it's he makes a statement that the world is what asks something of you. Mm. Your meaning comes from your response to that. Mm. You do not come up with the meaning. The world tells you what your meaning is. Yeah. It's up to you to to respond to that call. It's very similar to Joseph Campbell, Hero's Journey, right? The, the hero's the call for the hero, and it's up to you to listen to it and to go on that journey. So mm. trying to approach that question of you know, what do I do with my life from the other point of view of what is the world asking of me? What is the, the best way that I could contribute to the world in my unique set of cir circumstances and abilities and histories? Instead of what do I want, what does the world need from me? Yeah, and I'll, I'll, I'll ask one last question, then I'll go to you, Shashwa, because I also, uh, I, I think this question definitely would apply. Oh, I, I'd be interested to hear your take as well. Um, with it enwrapped in all that conversation is the question you, you mentioned, Ryan, how um, it's not what you do, but why you do it or how you do it. Um, so something along those lines, right? Um, I would like to dispute that just for a quick second. Um, just because, and maybe I'll use a personal example and then I'd like to hear your thoughts on that because I think there's probably many, many answers to the question. I don't think there's, I think you can go many ways, but so we were just talking about how, like maybe your life circumstances dictate your end purpose. Um, right. Like for example, Victor Frankl being in those camps for him, that, that turned his life's journey into finding meaning and becoming a psychologist and treating those sort of similar problems. I mean, I read the book a while ago, but I think something along those lines. So in some sense, what that means is that what you do actually matters, right? I mean, why you do it and how you do it is just as important. But do you think that maybe that disputes um, that idea of it's not what you do? Because I feel like for me personally, and maybe for Viktor Frankl, I, I mean, I don't know for sure, but like just speculating, right? You could say that what you do is just as important. Right? Do you, would you do you think so? Do you not think so? I'd be I re, I'm really curious to see what your thoughts were. Definitely. I mean, first of all, thank you for disagreeing with me. I think that this is where you get the really interesting conversation. We shouldn't be afraid to disagree with each other. I wish more people would disagree. Um, not look at disagreement as such a negative. So I actually agree <laughs> with what you're saying. Uh, I think that if I were to go back on what I said. I stand by what I said, but it all depends on, you know, what the, pr the perspective that you're trying to make the argument from. What I meant when I said, it's not what you do, it's how you do it. It's coming from the perspective of personal satisfaction or personal well-being when in your life, you know, the world might, the world won't benefit as much from you, from your existence, if you just are a truck driver for your entire life, you know, maybe you could have done more for the world not that being a truck driver is important but you could be a super happy truck driver and from the perspective of personal satisfaction and personal success i would stand by the point that it's not what you do it's how you do it because for a lot of people being a truck driver would be miserable but some people really enjoy it so it's not what they did it's how they did it if you're looking if you're gonna then go above the personal level into maybe the collective level I would say what you do becomes much more important. 
because that is where you get to the contributions that you're making to your society, which fundamentally make, I think, a more meaningful life. And that can contribute a lot to that idea of life satisfaction. So yeah, it's definitely not cut and dry. Um, yeah, that's and Shashwat, if you have any ideas, you can chime in so as well, but yeah. How I, so first when you said how over what it sort of created this tension in me as well, um, but how I kind of now reconcile with it based on what you just said is, I think this is a quote by Alan Watts or someone, but he basically says, it's not about what happens on the outside. It's about how you respond to what happens outside. So it's about, it goes back to this um, conversation about responsibility or the ability to respond and have happiness or well-being or contentment in our own control and not letting that one certain freedom that we have that we can choose give it out to the external world giving away the, the agency to choose one's well-being to external circumstances and i've not read v victor frankl's book but it seems like he was in a concentration camp yet he was able to um find some contentment within these harsh circumstances so what it reinforces to me is that what whether what, whatever kind of job it is yes there are some shitty jobs like you mentioned ryan but it's mainly about how we respond to what happens because um, there are jobs that might have been our dream jobs, but like Xavier was saying, he realized that, oh shit, like I thought this was the job for me, but I'm kind of bored of it now. So is it really about the external world or is it about how we respond to it? That was my take on it. Another quote that came to my mind, something that you initially said, uh, Ryan, about how like people like us were very inquisitive in search for answers, or I would say in search for the truth, there was a quote that came to my mind that my guru shared with me. So he said, in seeking the truth so intensely and obsessively, you might have missed it passing right under your nose. And I think that reinforces the idea that you were saying before, which is that just chill out, dude. Like it's, it's right here, right now, even though that sounds very cliche, um, but the truth, or the answers to the greatest mysteries of our life may not actually be some completely just outside. It may be within us and we might have the agency to, to kind of choose that and live a better life. But at the same time, it sounds like it also depends on our external reality as in like, what does the world need from me? I can't just exist by myself. There's this whole question of people that comes into um, play when we're talking about well-being and success and whatnot it can't be individual we inevitably are social beings and our success somewhere is influenced by other people whether or success as in like how we feel how we do what we do you know all that stuff so I have a question but I don't know if there's anything else you guys wanted to bring up before I move to the question about people and what role they play um, in this whole conversation I think for me, I just really quickly before we do that, I think we maybe just summarize everything that we've just mentioned about human experience and optimizing it. So I think like the first thing we were talking about was going over purposeful struggle and definitions of success and saying how if we are to do something, um, if we are to do something with our lives, it requires us to choose the struggle that we want and then intentionally try to overcome that. And then the second thing that we just, I think, finished talking about 
is surrender and peace of the human experience and accepting certain parts of the human experience and being at peace with them. Because once we are at peace with, with experience and with living, we can then be, uh, we can, I mean, I guess in that sense is optimizing how we perceive the world. It is uh, optimizing our mental state and that will help our capacity to be more effective. Um, and when effective can mean anything, right? Um, so I suppose those are, I guess, the two major themes that we've discussed. Um, but yeah, go ahead, Shashwan. Ryan, did you want to say something else as well? I, I felt like you were reaching towards your unmuting your mic. Yeah. Feel free to jump in. I was considering, but I'm afraid of jumping down another rabbit hole before <laughs> before you wanted to move on. But let's put it um, out. Let's put it out there, man. We can decide where we want to go together. Okay. So it's an idea that has been floating around my mind recently, talking about this idea of you know surrendering and not trying so hard. I say that, yet I'm still a very strong believer in personal development and philosophy and the efforts that I've made in those areas, I think objectively 100% have improved my life dramatically. And this is on my mind because recently I had someone close to me tell me almost concerned for me that I was too obsessed with self-development and they were seeing it. I think they were afraid that it was coming from a feeling of inadequacy and insecurity. And that links a lot with what I was saying about it's not what you do, it's how you do it. Because in my mind, so say that I'm like, really working hard on myself and I'm reading all these books and I'm having conversations like these. My friend observes this as me running from something, running from a fear of not being good enough and frantically trying to fix it. And therefore I'm doing this in an unhealthy way. In my mind, maybe I've deluded myself, but it seems like I have a more or less healthy approach to it. And it's actually just an exploration. It's almost an adventure to me. It is my journey. It is just what I choose to do in my free time because I love it. So how did I start this talk? <laughs> what was my point in the beginning? You were talking about, um, yeah, I, I think this is a very important thing that you brought up, which was, I see it as the dark side of personal development, or you basically said how um, sometimes it worries you following this path of your friend or someone was concerned that uh, maybe you're doing this from a place of feeling inadequate um, and yeah. that whole thing about philosophy and personal development. Yeah. So that was your concern. Did you want to add to that? Yeah, it's <laughs> my mind is so scattered. Podcasts are a lot harder than than you would think. Mm. having like really consistent structured conversation that the viewer enjoys it's a hard thing um just surrender man that's the point yeah i have so many thoughts so i i, I guess while you're collecting your thoughts ryan i just wanted to chip in very quickly i know you wanted to go on one one road shashwood i just wanted to give my yeah th this one is great I i'd like to uh, talk, this? Yeah, for sure. I, I think this can maybe be the third point or the third chapter or whatever of how to optimize human experience. And in some sense, this relates to what you were speaking about earlier, Ryan, about 
being inquisitive and curious. And I think a part of being inquisitive and curious comes down to the reason you're doing the things you are doing um, and why you're doing them. And like your friend, your friend had that concern for you because obviously you, you're very passionate. You exercise a lot. You read books. You love philosophy. You know what I mean? And all these things in someone else's mind may add up to the conclusion that maybe he or she is trying to fill up, uh, fill a hole that will never be filled, right? Um, and I, I strongly resonated with that feeling because this is something that I overcame in 2020. Um, so I guess like very quickly, 30 second anecdote. Um, I started reading personal development in 2018. I started reading in general in 2018 because I don't really, my family doesn't read. I mean, very minimally. And I got into reading and then, and then from reading, I, you know, started reading philosophers and self-development that led me to getting into fitness, which led me, you know, it was kind of like a, a snowball effect. And then I guess in 2020, I came to this really dreading, th this feeling of dread and I could not put my finger on it. Like it was very bizarre. I, I couldn't figure it out. And I realized, I guess, uh, alongside with getting help from external measures is that I realized that it was this feeling of inadequacy, right? of not being good enough and having to do all these things to justify that I am good enough and not be able to get there because it's essentially like a goalpost that always shifts because it's like, no matter how much you do, it will always change. So I suppose how this relates to what we were just talking about is this feeling with your friend. I mean, obviously I, I don't know your internal working as Ryan. Maybe we have to have a, a bit more, a few more podcasts to, that we have and share like our thoughts on this. But I, I think the general nature of, optimizing human experience and just living better lives is being very curious. And I guess a good way to, to characterize this is being respectfully curious, which is if we maybe have a thought that's positive or even a thought that's negative, as opposed to labeling those thoughts or labeling those actions, just being respectful enough to give it the, t the, the time it deserves. So for example, like, I guess, relating back to my own anecdote, if I was feeling like, well, am I doing this because I'm not good enough? Instead of judging that feeling, exploring it and being respectful of it and seeing where that goes because you never know where that can take you. And I feel like for intellectual pursuits, if there's something like you feel like this really strong existential dread, like what's the meaning of life? Instead of judging it, maybe having the thought of saying, well, this is really interesting. How about I explore this? And maybe reading Sartre and Camus and all these people. I mean, that's just one example, but I think that's a really important part is being curious. And that comes down to being curious about how your mind works and the reasons you're doing the things you're doing, as well as your intellectual pursuits and your physical pursuits. Can I deadlift 400 kilos? Maybe not, but being respectful enough to actually think about it, you know, and you never know. I guess that's just the thoughts I had. I'd be interested to hear what both of you thought. So I'd like to quickly add on to this conversation about the inadequacies one may feel, um, which may lead us towards going on this journey of personal development. Um, I think inadequacy inevitably leads to imperfections and how we as human beings are somewhere always imperfection, imperfect in some way, shape or form. And that idea I think relates to this, the theme of this entire podcast, which is Utopia is now. And um, Ryan, just to give you context, me and Xavier have been talking about this, which is utopia or that perfect society or that perfect being or that perfect state is always on the horizon. 
the two steps closer we move towards it, the two steps farther it moves away from us. And no matter how, how much we move towards it, it is always going to always somewhere be infinite. It's like an asymptote. It, you, you're getting closer and closer and closer towards it, yet never really there. And so in that sense, uh, one take on this whole personal development stuff could be, well, this is just the nature of reality. This is how nature grows in complexity and change and growth is the only constant. The other thing that Xavier, you brought up was intention. As in, why are we doing what we're doing? As in, like, we're going on the journey of personal development, but why, really? And it comes down to the intention. And really thinking about when, like, when I'm saying intention, breaking that down. Intention. So being intention and feeling this, like, kind of this, this duality that moves us or, like, pushes us to kind of take action or be more inquisitive and curious. Um, I think when we're have setting an intention, there's two ways to look at it. And this is where the idea of the kingdom of ends comes in that um, Immanuel Kant described, where we can, the intention one could be that what we do is a means to an end or our, what we do is an end in itself. And I think that can be applied to any situation, whether that's networking or reading or whatever. If we think that doing that will get us to some place in the future where we will find happiness and success, then I think what Kant was trying to say is that that's not going to work out because we're never going to be happy in that sense. But if we can realize that every action is an end in itself and success is not one day, but it's day one, then I think that brings about like a profound shift in the way we can pursue personal development. So those were kind of my two takes on, on this whole topic of how personal growth and self-help and pursuit of the truth can, can kind of go in darker sides, but also there's the other brighter side. I love that idea. And I, I have an anecdote as well from just a couple months ago when I was getting really caught up in this feeling of needing to choose something or decide how I was going to live my life or what path I was going to go down. I was very up in my head thinking a lot. And it was actually my mom that kind of just like smacked me out of it, which I was very grateful to her for. And I had this very, that same day, I had this very sudden urge to read this book called Aragon that I read when I was younger. It's like this medieval dragon fantasy book. And it's a whole series, like four books, like probably 2000, 2500 pages. And I just read the whole series within like two weeks because I just loved it. It was, it was exactly what you're talking about of just reading it because I wanted to read it, treating it as an end in and out of itself. You know, probably I can imagine Xavier, I have a very similar kind of past of starting to read in like, I don't know, 2017, 2018, which seems like we probably followed a similar path and got to a similar place. And I had forgotten what it was like to read a book just for the sole purpose of just reading that book. You know, because when you get in the self-development world and all these business books and even philosophy, I think, can somehow sometimes get in this state of reading it for some other goal, you know, as a means to an end. And fiction was really just a fantastic grounding for me to remember what it was like to do something just as an end in and of itself. Just reading a freaking fantasy book because 
you love fantasy and it was really entertaining and it was fun. It was such an immense relief of all the pressure and tension that had built up inside my own head, like I mentioned earlier, because of my own mental chatter. I was creating my own suffering and having this release of that, of just treating something as an end in and of itself was immensely therapeutic. Wow, man. I'd like to quickly add another point to that. I think that relates to this whole notion of being playful and childlike, where a child is never looking for like, oh, if I do this, then this is going to lead to that. Or maybe some children can like make those associations that if I cry, my mom will give me that chocolate. But like generally, like being in this childlike state of play is more immersed or, or immersion of um, activities that offer um, satisfaction or contentment as an end in itself rather than a means to some other goal in the future. And I think it relates to this point that again, Immanuel Kant spoke about uh, or this paradox of having purposiveness or like being purposeful without a purpose. So kind, I, I don't know if that makes sense. Purposiveness without a purpose as in we're being purposeful, but at the end of the day, that purpose or where it leads to is nowhere. And he kind of describes that as just the nature of reality. Nature just works in that way where it's purposeful yet with no purpose as in where the fuck is nature going? Who knows? Where is the universe going to go? No fucking clue. But that's the paradox. And I feel like if we can hold that paradox or find that um, state of being where we're able to be purposeful yet having no purpose, I think the kingdom of ends comes alive and we're able to do things that lead to lead to some sort of material success and survival and whatnot, but also just being very content and happy and treating things like an end in itself in that moment. Mm. Um, yeah, that's my take on it. I just wanted to say this quote from Picasso um, that I think encompasses like this this discussion between you two. Um, so he says, "It took me four years to paint like Raphael." but it took me a lifetime to paint like a child. Um, and so this idea of, this also goes back to the point we were talking about, about um, surrender and peace and being childlike and just being in the moment and experiencing life as it is. And, you know, like you were saying, Ryan, reading a book just for the sake of it, because who gives a fuck? I'm, I'm not doing it to, you know, get like my mental gains up or anything like that. It's just for the sake of enjoyment and, being in that moment and really, I guess, harnessing, um, harnessing life's beauty in the form of words. Um, yeah, that was just a quick, a quick quote I came across recently. I thought it was very fitting. I'd like to make one quick comment on that quote. I think it's quite profound because I heard someone say where the first 21 years of our lives were kind of putting on this ego as in, let's say we're like an onion. The first 21 years we're putting on these layers, right? Going from being a child to an adult, right? Setting our egos in. And then the next 21 years or the rest of our lives, our job is to, not our job, but like somewhere um, it's about peeling those layers off again and going back to being a child. And I think when we look at nature or how just things work, there's always that thing. It goes up, we set our ego, it goes to the peak, and then it starts going back to where it came from, to the source of nothingness. And I think that's what Picasso was trying to say is that going back to being that child where, yeah, I'm not trying to be some Raphael, some great guy, but just being that 
pure essence that children have that kind of allow oneself to be in touch with the universe or the transcendental and whatnot. So I really appreciate that quote. Thank you for sharing. Can I jump in and just spitball a random thought? Yeah, go ahead. This is going to be for my absolutely my own sakes, very selfish, because I just want to get your guys' input on this. Ah. And it's going to sound somewhat arrogant, just forewarning. But do you ever feel like you are learning? You are learning things that other people typically have to like learn over the course of their entire lives, right? Like most people, I've got a lot of comments from people much older than me, like, oh my God, you're learning all this stuff so young. I wish I was learning all this. Oh my God, like you're set up for so much success, blah, blah, blah. And it kind of messes with me because then it's like, am I skipping a part of life? You know, what is my path then? If, if most people's path is to, to have this kind of like central, I think a career is like a good representation of what I'm trying to express of a career of maybe like owning a business or working at a corporate job for like 20, 30 years, and this core part of your life. What we're talking about, and maybe that's the fundamental lesson of it all is you don't need to skip it, but it seems almost like realizing that, you know, money is not the answer. Then that makes you less inclined to go have a career of sorts, right? This is how I, I've felt it. It's almost like a part of me just says, oh, well, screw career. I just want to go like live in the mountains in some cabin and like read books all day and shit, you know? But is that skipping over this fundamental essence of life? Is it almost like copying out? by learning all of this and reading all of this so early on, are we almost, I don't know what the question is, but it's something that I've been thinking about and I've kind of struggled with internally for like at least a year or so I've been thinking about it. I would, so I, I have some like internal resistance to that point. So I would dispute, the first thing I would say is I would dispute it. And the reason I would dispute it, so. I guess to use the example that you were using, you were saying how, um, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm, these are comments that you were getting on your personal development videos, is that right, Ryan? That you were receiving from people about- I've you know, gotten some from there, but just like in general, yeah, sure. in life yeah, from okay. various other people, yeah. Yeah, cool. So what it seems like is that, you know, people that with more lived experience per se, or just experience in general, they've come up to you and said things along the lines of, Hey, like, you know, you're an old soul or maybe not old soul, but you know, you have things that are beyond no, word for word, old soul, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, things along those lines. Right. My initial thought is, and this is, I, this is something I've been thinking about a lot as well. Um, not this specific thought exactly, but what I'm about to say, which is that, everyone's life experiences and everyone's questions and doubts and curiosities arrive from the lived experience that they've had. So I guess this is sort of like a determinist versus free will argument. I, I think I sit more on the determinist side. So I, maybe not to get sidetracked. What I'm basically saying is that I feel that the experiences that you've had have dictated your life in a way that means that you know things that other people don't, right? But the, that does not, that is not in a sense, 
good or bad. It just is that way, right? And so for people that are maybe, let's say like a 50 or 60 year old that say, how do you not, how do you know this? And I don't know this. I've lived here like three times your life experience. In some sense, the decisions that that person's made and their circumstances that they've lived in have meant that they've been unable to learn those lessons. But that does not take away from the fact that, that but that, no, but that doesn't necessarily mean that there is any benefit or or cost involved in either one of those lives. So just because you have come across those lessons doesn't necessarily mean that you have had a better life or a worse life. It just means that is the life that you have lived. And for that person that's not come across come across those experiences, that doesn't mean they've lived a worse life because they haven't, oh, not worse life. It doesn't mean they're a worse of a person for not learning those lessons. It just means that's the life that they've lived. And so I kind of lost my train of thought, but essentially I, I, the, the point I, I wanted to bring is that I feel that our experiences in the, in of themselves are dictated from our circumstances. And we don't really have any control over what we learn from those. Like we control our actions, but like the, the fruits of those actions or the experiences or the circumstances we have no control over. So in some sense, we can't really take for that. I mean, I, I think we can't take as much credit as we think um maybe this is a bit of a controversial take maybe not but i, I don't know if so, i lost the thought there but <laughs> there's definitely a lot of interesting stuff you said there uh hinduism actually has the same f- philosophy that says that focus on your dharma and forget about the fruits that's going to come on its own um but aside from that this notion of like growing up too early that's what i've been told right like oh you you like can you just be normal like why do you have to talk all about philosophy and this and that like people come to this this realization much later like why don't you just enjoy like all other kids and like fuck around and whatnot and i i understand where they're coming from but my response to that is empathizing with their condition and it's usually older folks who say this to me um so i think on a societal level this trend is going to become faster and faster. And I say that because younger people have access to more and more information. I think younger people are more curious. I think younger people have the balls to ask questions. And I think being curious and asking questions leads to some of these realizations. I think this notion of not money not being the answer to life and there's something more, I would say like there's kids who are probably like 15, 16 year olds who probably know this and they're like yeah i want to do something that's meaningful i don't just want to like pursue this job and like just become rich and whatnot and i think that the, the generation above us was giving us that lesson they suffered that and somewhere realize it later but then their their realizations and their learnings are now coming to us at an earlier stage and i think that's fantastic because it means that People on this planet, and I'm now talking more like global rather than just individual, but both are inevitably connected. I think we will be more inclined to pursuing um, or doing things in our lifetimes that matter, that actually bring about some form of meaningful change or some form of positive impact on the world. And I, the more and more younger people, younger than us that I interact with, I see that they're even more driven about these things. And maybe they're not so much into philosophy and whatnot, but I see this trend of wanting to bring about some uh, utopia or like, that's just like how I call it, but 
doing something that matters, not just for money and whatnot. So I see that as fucking great. Like, I think this is the path society should be on. And that will, that is what will allow us to fight all the, not fight, but like deal with all these greater challenges that society as a whole faces. On an individual level, I think that's like a different story, but I kind of reconcile with it by just empathizing with the people who are telling me that and realizing that, okay, this is the condition that they've been brought up through. And them telling me this does not change my reality. I can't just go back to being normal, quote unquote. I am who I am. And this is who I've become as a result of the experiences I've gone through. And I recognize where they're coming from. But that being said, I, I also am acknowledging and being content of who, where I am and who I am and not dismissing that because I think that could actually lead to um, a lot of good stuff in the future. So that's kind of my take on, on the dilemma. I, I agree with you. And I think that fundamentally what an, an elder or an older person's lesson, the thing they're trying to say is enjoy yourself, have fun, be childlike, right? Which is what we were just talking about. So again, not to pat myself on the back or anything, but the point that I was talking about earlier, just of like, it's not what you do, but it's how you do it. Like you can have just as much fun reading philosophy as someone else does going out and party. Party. It's not what you're doing. It's the enjoyment that you're getting from it, the, the childlike exploration and curiosity, excitement. So that's how I try to try to empathize with them, like you were saying, of coming from where are they coming from? Well, they just want to make sure that, you know, they probably look back at their childhood as like fond memories, good times. And then they think of their adulthood as more struggles and hardship and hard decisions, which like I have to be humble about because I'm 21. Like I haven't gone through that. So I try to really take that advice to heart. But I think that fundamentally that's the lesson they're trying to impart is don't forget to enjoy yourself along the way. Don't try to grow up too fast because you feel like you have to figure everything out, which is ultimately very wise. I think that you have to respect that. You have to realize that they do probably know more than you in certain areas, and it's good to respect that. Yeah, and I think as well, this maybe talks about, this talks, uh, this covers the point of, I forget the name of the matrix, but it's like a, it's like a, it's like a square. There's like four quadrants. So like the first quadrant is known knowns. The second quadrant is known unknowns. The third quadrant is unknown knowns. And then the fourth quadrant is unknown unknowns. And I feel like the pursuit or being respectfully curious or like looking for these sort of answers is in some sense, like the point of like personal development of, of reading philosophy and all these sort of things, which is uncovering things that we could not even conceptualize, like not even think of. Um, and that I think that comes down to what you were saying, Ryan, about the about the people that had made those comments to you and did not know of these things or these lessons. And um, I, I think it really, that's all a part of the journey, I think. And I think each person's journey is to find the things that they did not know of earlier. And maybe your journey starts at a particular place, like at 21, and some other people's journey starts at 51. Um, and I think that's sort of the beauty of everything is that it's all idiosyncratic and everything is different. And that is maybe in essence, the essence of surrender, which is 
anything can happen at any time and we just have to accept that i suppose that's maybe tying the ideas that we had together into one or a few sentences i don't know maybe i'm butchering it but <laughs> but yeah that was just a, a quick thought yeah I, I love the emphasis on just not labeling things as better or worse because I, I think that i get into the habit of doing that so to have you you put it in terms of that's just where you are and that's where someone else is neither one is better or worse it's just the way that things are it's very refreshing so thank you for putting in those terms so there's another question that i think kind of relates to this that i would i wanted to ask and i think this is the almost the perfect moment to ask so while thinking of optimizing the human experience, a big part of that is the others, as in like there's the self and there's other people, right? Like you brought up this notion of other people telling you this and that, and it can go anyway, right? Like having relationships can cause, or, or something that I found interesting is that the best times in our lives and the worst times in our lives, one thing that's common between both of them is the fact that there are people involved there's other people and other people can make our lives super happy and like the best moments in our lives but at the same time they can make it miserable and absolutely devastating so i it, it brings this very weird paradox as, as that i wanted to know your thoughts how do you reconcile this paradox and going into this topic of relationships with people in trying to optimize the human uh, experience. Does that make sense? Could you summarize that? I'm going to give it to Xavier. <laughs> yeah. Could you summarize that point again? Because I, I think I got it, but I'm not too sure. So how do you uh, reconcile this paradox where the best moments of our lives and the worst moments of our lives involve people and can be caused by other people? So how do we kind of... Uh, build relationships or deal with people in ways that can optimize the human experience where we're not having too many worst experiences of our lives because of people and going towards like more balance in some way. Mm. My, my immediate thought comes down to principles and ethics. Um, so I guess a bit of context for Ryan, I'm, I'm super passionate about ethics um, and I want to like eventually specialize in like corporate ethics, like business ethics. Um, and the reason I say ethics to this question of good experiences and bad experience born from relationships and people is that I feel that in life, when we are unsure of the principles we hold, we often conflate, we can often get in a tangle with people because our principles collide with each other. Um, so I'm trying to think of an example. I don't know. So let's suppose you, you and your friends like going to the library. Then one of your friends suddenly says, okay, yeah, let's on Friday night, let's go down to the bar and get fucked up. On one hand, if you're usually the type of person to only strictly read or do certain things, you would say, well, I'm not really about that. And then that causes some sort of tension, you know, whatever, there's a rift. It's not a great example, but the point is, is that, um, if you don't have the principles, you may have trouble saying no to those sort of things, or you may get involved in those experiences like going to the party when you don't really want to. And then there's this sort of dissonance and this feeling of, I hate this. Why am I doing this? 
Um, and so for me, this question of how do we not get tangled in the negative experiences of being with, of being with people and maybe enhancing the positive experiences with the people we like, I feel like that comes down to having very strong principles and sticking to those principles as much as we can. So if we only want to be with, we only want to form relationships with people that are, that have, I guess, in some sense, a high moral ethical code, we should try as best as possible to try and stick to those principles and align with people that share those same principles. This, I'd like to make a small caveat. This is not the same as ideology, so in ideas. So I think we should also caution to not stick with ideology specifically, because then you can sort of create this echo chamber where you're not really challenged on your thoughts. I guess politics is a good example. Like, I don't think saying I'm a Democrat and like sticking to that, that's not really a principle, right? Like that's a, that's an idea. I'm talking about like, I'm trying to think of a principle. So like for me, like a principle is um, try and be as good as a person as possible as opposed to, you know, a principle isn't like, um, like a, pol a political party or affiliation. Um, and so that's the caveat, which is be very careful of what you're aligning yourself with and making the distinction that it is principle rather than ideas. I don't know why I did a Dem uh, Texan accent with a Democrat. That's, it seems a bit counterintuitive, but, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what I was going to say. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, so I guess that's my response is having strong principles before you interact with, I guess, the wider world. So I'd like to challenge that. Okay, Ryan, do you have anything to say? Go ahead. I, okay, yeah. Um, so my first, I had a different first thought, but then what you said kind of interwove in the end. So my first thought was, kind of back to what we were talking about earlier, which is the satisfaction of life comes from the struggle, right? So Shash, what you were saying, there was kind of good experience with people and bad experience with people. I would push back on just the generalization of something being a bad experience. And therefore it's like something that should be avoided, right? Because just earlier today, I was listening to another episode, Tim Ferriss podcast with uh, Elizabeth Lesser. And this was the first time that I'd heard of her, but she she had an experience where her sister got bone marrow cancer. And her and her sister had previously, for most of their lives been somewhat you know, distant, not very close. And when her sister got this cancer, they did a search for someone who could be a match. And she, Elizabeth, the one being interviewed was a perfect match for her sister. So she would literally be giving her, her bone marrow and all the blood in her body, her sister's body, after they radiated with chemo and killed all the cells, they would inject Elizabeth's blood in or her bone marrow, which would then create all the new blood in her sister's body. So they'd be like intimately connected, right? Uh, but they had this divide between them, this rift between them. They didn't get along. So before they had this procedure done, Elizabeth told her sister, I think we should go to therapy first and really start working out a lot of our issues. And they had a very, her sister was very pushed back against that a lot because she didn't believe in a lot of that therapy and self work. 
but they eventually did and they got past all these huge burdens and and judgments that had on each other and they formed this really really beautiful relationship and she gave her her blood they did the procedure and her sister lived for a year said it was the best year of her life but then the, the cancer came back and it killed her so my my point with bringing that up is that The beauty in that, just that story alone, the beauty in that comes from the fact that it was hard, right? It was a struggle, both in the, the case of the cancer and in the case of her relationship with her sister. The fact that they were able to solve their own problems and, and talk openly and be vulnerable and connect with each other after being disconnected created a more beautiful experience and more beautiful connection than could have existed if they had just gotten along like best friends from day one and never had any negative experiences. So to go to Xavier's point with principles, I think that if I were to say, what does the world need to ensure that we at least make progress and have better and better relationships? I think the only thing that we can ask of an individual is the openness it's humility, basically. The openness to, to change yourself, to work on yourself in communion with others and in reciprocation with others. Because if no one is willing to change, then no one, we can't get anywhere, you know? No one is 100% right. So everyone has to take on this attitude of humility and willingness to change. And if we all have that, it might get ugly still, we might have bad experiences, but the trajectory overall will be upward, right? I think the problem arises going into like ideologies like Xavier was talking about when you get rock solid in your beliefs and you think you have everything figured out, that's when progress stops. So I think the fundamental principle is this idea of humility and accepting that you might be wrong and accepting that you might need to change to be a better person for both yourself and other people. I completely agree. Um, but you can chip in that shot. Yeah, man. Thank you so much for sharing. So I was having that, some tension with what uh, Xavier said, and I wanted to challenge that, but you put it in a way that like resolved it. So maybe I can explain what I mean. When I was thinking about why principles could be problematic was that I was thinking, for example, how Immanuel Kant went about like rationality and ethics. He, he went about a very logical, very rational um like methodology in order to live an ethical life and very principle-based. And the problem that came up with that was that there is no room for flexibility and in extremities, it can turn into this like egotism and solipsism and just full of the self. And that I am the only person who knows everything and I know that my principles I've read so much and this is the way to go. And I think I was thinking that could cause so many more problems because it's like you're stuck. But then what you said, Ryan, where the principle could be that of humility, and that inevitably means that there is wiggle room. And it means that we meet people on a human level first. And it, there, is, there is this notion of forgiveness. I think forgiveness in human relationships is a very important thing, because if we get stuff that this is the way and this is not the way, and if, if you do this, fuck it, like it, it's all over, then there's going to be more problems. But if we're willing to uh, accept the imperfections in people and forgive them of certain things, then I think that would actually change a lot. 
And there's an anecdote or there's not anecdote. There's a, um, a story that comes to my mind from a book I read called Flow by Mihai Csikszentmihalyi, where he kind of posed this paradox. And he was like, how do you reconcile with this? And that's where this question came to me. And basically his answer, very similar to what you said, Ryan, was he gave his, an example of his son who one day was traveling through um, the, what's the park in New York, whatever, the Central Park in New York. And he was going back home. And this is a real story. He was going back home. And um, there was a, two, two robbers who came and stopped the kid and basically showed a gun and said, give me everything you have. Otherwise, we'll shoot you, whatever, things that robbers do. And so this kid uh, very innocently gave up everything and just started to walk back home and they started to go their way. But now this kid lost his Timex watch, which his parents had given him on his seventh birthday. And he had this very emotional connection towards it. A rational being would say like, fuck that. Don't go, go back and ask them for it. But being a child, this guy had this kind of craziness to say that, okay, no, no, no. I really want that watch back. I'm going to go and get it. So he went back to the robbers and he said, hey, I'm paraphrasing, but basically this, this notion that, hey, if that Timex watch is really cheap, you're going to sell it, you're not going to get much. That to me has a lot of emotional value. So would you consider giving it back to me, please? The response that the robbers had was that they actually went through a democratic vote and they ended up deciding to give it back to him. The lesson that Chikson Mihai was trying to put there was that we usually often get caught up in like certain roles and rules that we think is the way to go. So for example, like a rational being, a, an adult would think, oh, those are robbers. They're playing the role of a robber and they will be robbers. If I go back and ask this, they'll probably shoot me. So fuck that, I'm going back. They could have done that. But what this child did differently was that he changed the roles. And it relates to what you said, Ryan, it's about humility. The child decided not to see them as robbers, but to see them as something else, to see them as human beings that could empathize with what he's going through. And I think changing up those roles in a negative relationship, whatever we may be having, seeing people in a different light or changing the rule, just changing the game, that, that interaction that is happening, the rules of that game can somewhat um, bring about this like flexibility and allow people to see each other on a human level before the roles that we are usually given, whether that's like husband and wife or boss and uh, employee, or I don't know, different types of relationships with people can lead to different outcomes. But um, how Mihai, Chicks and Mihai kind of resolved with this was this notion of being flexible and seeing people in a different light, changing up that role and meeting people on a human level before all these other roles that were usually given. So that was kind of, um, yeah, that was the answer that I, I had found. And yeah, I was just curious to know from you guys. So thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, the, wow, that, that was such a good story, actually. Um, it relates to another story I had, which is pretty similar. Like there was a robber, he robbed someone. And then while the person was being robbed, he, he said something like, oh, do you want my wallet and my laptop as well as my bag? And then the robber stopped, was like, bro, what are you doing? Like, I'm robbing you. Like, why are you giving me more stuff? And for some reason, that moment, in that moment, I, I think from memory, the robber gave back the stuff because he realized like this guy was doing, he was violating the label that he was assigned to. He was no longer the robber. He was giving him something because 
he felt, I guess, maybe bad for him or he understood his circumstance and he was like violating the robber's identity of being a robber. He was just a man that had come from bad circumstances that had led him to that end destination of robbing people. And then the guy that had offered him more stuff shattered that identity. That's what it seems like. And that comes from, like you said, that humility and being intensely fixated on learning as much as possible through the flexibility or I guess in other ways, like what you were saying, Ryan, being um, of, of humility. And so, yeah, I think, I think that was, I think, well, that was, that was really cool. <laughs> a quick quote that came to my mind in relation to violating expectation. Aldous Huxley once said, an experience that does not violate expectation is not an experience. And I think that can apply to any experience in this idea of optimizing the human experience, violating our own experiences, throwing in something that just catches us off the hook, uh, kind of surprises us. I think that's such a core element in having more like a more content life, as in seeing things from a different eye, violating the everyday mundaneness of, of the adult mind. So that's just a quote I wanted to share. I really, really love that. And I really, really resonate with it right now because of the experience I had last week with a certain uh, substance. <laughs> and it, I don't want to get, I, th I don't think we have time to really get too into it. And honestly, I'm a little like burnt out today already. So I think that I won't go deep into it, but it absolutely violated a million and one expectations. I did not expect any of it. And it took a wild turn. Um, but fundamentally, that's what made it so impactful. It, it, the fact that it wasn't what I expected taught me things that I would have never expected. And that thought is scary. Like it, it's very deeply intertwined with fear. Fear and excitement are two sides of the same coin. It's something scares you it can very easily also excite you. And that's actually a little trick that I learned from someone is when you're really afraid of something, try to reposition it in your mind, reframe it as excitement instead of fear. It actually works pretty well. But then while I was on this substance, I had this immense, intense feeling of what life could be. And the fundamental lesson of it was life could be like you're you're constantly at the very edge you're constantly like maybe like you're riding a wave and you're almost about to fall but you're like really excited you don't know what's going to happen next but you're freaked out you don't know and you're kind of scared but that's what makes it so exciting and what makes you feel so alive so i really love that idea realizing that you know a good life doesn't <laughs> come from you like meeting everything that you expect and just like unrolling exactly how you figured it would. It comes from you being surprised and scared shitless, but also really excited by the unknown and just really leaning into that unknown. So that's a fantastic Aldous Huxley quote. I definitely dig that. I, I think, um, yeah, it, it touches on like what you were just saying, the unknowns or the unknown unknowns, the things we did not even conceive of. 
Um, but you just mentioned something, Ryan, about what the world could be like. And I feel like this is the perfect place where we can wrap everything up and ask a final question that we want. We like asking everyone, which is um, about utopia. And uh, Shasha and I would be very curious to see what your utopia is, like what you, your utopia would look like. And this could be very specific or very general. I know you just mentioned maybe one factor, which is always living on the edge. Do you think it would be maybe like a magnifying that feeling or what would this utopia look like? Hmm. I guess I have permission to be biased because you're asking me what my utopia would look like. Obviously everyone else's would be different. For me, I think this answer, this question really gets down to personal values, right? Like what's important to you and therefore what do you want to see in other people and in the world? And I think that definitely the point I made earlier about humility is a big one. I think that humility invites such deeper connection and connection is one of the foundational, if not the foundation to a really deeply lived life. Something that I've just felt in the last week very strongly is, you know, being authentic, really authentic in conversations and connecting with people past any layer of ego or identity and really strengthening those connections just leads to such a profound sense of satisfaction in life that is otherwise lacking, at least for me. So that idea of humility, authenticity, being so much less concerned with our identities and our egos, like <laughs> that was a massive, massive, uh, element also in my experience last week was just really seeing how caught up we are in this so surface level thing <laughs> it's so mind-blowingly mind like blindingly obvious when you're on that um, you slowly start to lose it as you come down but it's still really strong in my mind of just being trying to be less concerned with the labels that we put on ourselves and much more concerned with like you said, connecting with people as a human being. So I think that's fundamentally where we all derive meaning from and satisfaction from and joy. And I would say that those are important components of utopia. I don't know what it would look like exactly, but I think any utopia would have to have those. Wow, man, thank you so much for sharing that is very profound and I completely agree. I think it connects to everything we've been speaking about, whether that's uh, the frictions that we face, um, struggles, success, passion, whether that's uh, having relationships with people, the kind of ones we have, but I think you nailed it. It's about having those authentic connections, looking beyond the surface level identity uh, and, and connecting with that which goes beyond. So I couldn't agree more, man. Thank you so much for sharing.